delightful. Um, it's a huge blessing to be back and to be with you and Joe Duff here with you. So um, I want to tell you a story first, and it's kind of a great story. Um, I know many of you know Joe Novenson, um, and Joe's a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful man. He's become a dear friend. Um, but when he was here for the very first time in the South, he's from uh, Philadelphia, when he was in the South for the first time uh, interviewing for a job, they took him out to eat for breakfast. They took him to a restaurant. And his plate comes, and on his plate, there's this thing that he doesn't recognize, and it looks a little bit like gruel, even though he's from the South, he'll know that it's grits. And, and Joe says, oh, to the waitress, oh, excuse me, what is that? She says, that's grits. And Joe says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't order that. And she says, darling, grits just come. <laughs> and, and, and Joe, of course, turned that into like this beautiful picture of grace, right? Grace is like grits. Grace just comes. <laughs> and, uh, right? Uh, so as odd as it might be to kind of equate grits and grace, which I'm not from the South, but I've kind of come to the, the conclusion that unless grits are cheese grits or they have like copious amounts of butter and brown sugar, then I'm not super interested. Uh, that's probably like a very non-Southern way to eat grits. I apologize. But that is the way it is. Uh, as much as it may be odd to equate those two, grace and grits, right? Um, passage we're going to look at this morning is one probably quite familiar with. Um, but at its essence, uh, I hope that we can see and learn a little bit about grace. Um, it's, we're going to sit in the end of Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. And then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. It's a passage I'm sure you, you're all somewhat familiar with. You've probably all heard the stories. But it's one that I think we oftentimes don't kind of dig down into and ask some questions. Like, why would Satan want to temp tempt Jesus? Like, what's the point? Um, was Jesus actually tempted by the temptations? He's God. He's a son of God in the flesh. Would he actually be tempted by anything that Satan would have to say to him? So uh, we're going to peel down in there. But before we get there, we're going to look at the, the first piece, um, Satan's motivation. Why on earth would Satan have sought and had any interest in actually trying to tempt Jesus. Um, and to do that, we're going to bounce around a little bit. But in Psalm 8, and we're going to look at this kind of hierarchy of creation, um, which is simply understanding Satan's role and what I think Scripture uh, kind of reveals as Satan's motives when it comes to his interaction with humanity, with us, with everyone that he interacted with through, through Scripture, with Adam and Eve, and with Jesus here. So in Psalm 8, um, God talks about uh, how he created the heavenly beings and how he made man. And in Psalm 8, it kind of sets up where man is made in this hierarchy of creation. Man is made a little lower than the heavenly beings and yet was crowned with glory and honor. So you have this fascinating picture where you have God the Father, you have, you have the Trinity, then you have angels as these created beings, and then below the angels you have man. Yet God decided to crown us with honor and glory, his His um, his image bearers, right? And then if you look later and you find in Hebrews 1, it starts to talk about the actual role of angels. What are angels, what do they do? And in Hebrews 1, God talks about, are not all angels ministering spirits, spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Well, those who will inherit salvation, that's us, right? And angels are ministering uh, spirits sent to serve us. So the picture you have is, God, angels, man, 
But God has asked angels and given angels the task of serving those below them. And I think that as we look at scripture, if you look at Adam and Eve, if you look at Job, if you look at how Satan interacts with Peter, how he interacts with us, and how he interacts with Jesus, we run into this massive issue of pride. Sometimes we, we hear, I think, without ever really digging in, that, that Satan wanted to be God. And I don't find that anywhere in scripture, that Satan wanted to be God. But I think he had a great problem with his pride as an angel in being called to serve beings lower than himself. And throughout scripture, we'll find that when Satan does interact with people, he's trying to prove that God's judgment is wrong, that we are actually unworthy of God's care and we're unworthy of his service as an angel. And you may say like, oh, come on, pride's not that big a deal. Pride wouldn't really push someone to do that, wouldn't push an angel to do that. Tim Keller calls pride the carbon monoxide of sin. It's that thing which kills us, but we never see it. And when you look throughout scripture, I think we see that pride absolutely could push, motivate, dictate, even an angel to try to prove us unworthy of God's care and definitely unworthy of his service. Okay, so uh, we jump in, God's son made flesh, and we're gonna look at the baptism for just a sec. So uh, Jesus comes to be baptized in the Jordan by John. Um, as he goes down into the water, the heavens part, the Holy Spirit comes down and settles upon Jesus, and the voice of the Father says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And you get echoes, right? There are certain things that, that you'll kind of naturally see, you'll go, oh, like, God, there's the Trinity speaking, okay, creation, you're gonna see some things, hints of a garden in there. Um, you're also gonna hear, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, an echo from Isaiah. That's language about the suffering servant, the one who is to come, who will suffer for God's people. But maybe the, the biggest one is you'll, you'll see Israel, and you'll see the Exodus in this, right? Um, Israel, who was baptized in the Red Sea and then goes in the wilderness for 40 years to, um, to actually ultimately prove themselves unfaithful to God's faithfulness. Um, Jesus, who's baptized in the, in the Jordan, goes into the wilderness, is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, ultimately to prove himself faithful, right? He's about to um, usher in the church, the true Israel, the people of God by faith in Christ and grace and mercy through Christ. But the encounter with Satan, it's not some kind of, um, you know, drama scene just to make a theological point. It's a very real and very intimate encounter between the Son of God made flesh and between the fallen angel Satan, right? It has very real motives and very real consequences. So Jesus is baptized, comes up out of the Red Sea, and it says the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted. So he gets into the wilderness and scripture tells us he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how many of you have fasted much at all, if, if any, um, but what actual true hunger is really like. And here appears Satan to Jesus. The tempter comes to him and he says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The first temptation, right? And you'll hear, I hope, in that language, you'll hear the Garden of Eden, if, if you really are the Son of God, 
then tell these stones to become bread. What is, what is Satan actually tempting Jesus with? He's saying, if you are the son of God, then you obviously have it in your authority and in your power to tell these stones to become bread. Satisfy your, your hunger. It's not sinful. There's nothing ultimately wrong with it, right? But use your power. Now, why would Satan want to tempt Jesus like that? How, how is that in, in any way proving his point? Because if Jesus uses his power to serve himself, it's ultimately a self-focused use of his power. If you're the son of God, turn, turn him to bread. Satisfy yourself. You must be so hungry, right? And would that have been tempting to Jesus? Well, again, he's not, it wouldn't be sinning. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything outside of his authority. But to serve himself was completely anathema to the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to serve others. He came to lay down his life for ours. He came to go to the cross in our place. His life was a life of suffering and service and sacrifice, a life totally pointed outward and not inward to his own need. So what does he say to Satan? He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes God's word, quotes his word. He quotes the living scripture. And then later when he's talking about this in John 4, I'm not about this exact spot, but he, he, he broadens it. It makes it more beautiful. My food, it's not bread. It's to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the first temptation, down. The second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, has him look out over the temple. And anytime, anytime we have Jesus at the temple, remember that the temple has been devoid of God's presence for nearly 400 years, right? And now God himself is showing up at the temple. So he's up on the pinnacle. And again, the if you are the son of God. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And now Satan's going to quote scripture. Okay, if you really are the son of God, then throw yourself down. And, and this is one of the points where we want to remember that, that Satan and Jesus have different knowledge points, right? Jesus knows what he's come to do and how he's going to do it. He knows that the cross is coming. Satan doesn't. Satan's not, remember, Satan is not like the evil form of God, the evil version of God. He's not omnipotent, right? He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't know how God's plan is going to unfold. But when he lays this out there, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down so you'll know that God will protect you. He's quoting Psalm 91. And I think the reason he's doing that is because when Jesus comes up out of the water and God speaks, this is my son whom I love with him, I am well pleased. It's from Isaiah 40, it's from the suffering servant. And Satan says, well, okay, if you're the suffering servant, you may actually have to suffer. And if you are gonna suffer, you better find out if God is actually gonna be faithful to protect you. Throw yourself down, jump. See if the angels actually catch you and minister to you, right? Now, why would that have in any way been tempting to Jesus? Throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple so that you'll find out if the angels are going to catch you. Satan has actually hit far closer to home, I think, than he has any idea. Because Jesus knows that the cross is before him. He knows the suffering that is awaiting him. 
It's, it's not wrong of us to think of Jesus being afraid, right? There are lots of things that we have to do that we know we're going to do, but we are still afraid to do. I had a number of those recently with my surgeries. There are things that, that I walked into the doctor's office knowing what was coming, afraid of what it was, but still knowing I was going to do it, right? So Jesus is standing at the temple and he's being tempted to jump just so you'll know for sure. Know for sure that God is going to be faithful and actually protect you when it goes down. Well, what does he say? Instead of testing the Father, Jesus answers him. It's also written, do not put, your Lord, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's great. He, he quotes this passage out of Exodus 17. When the Israelites were thirsty, they didn't have water. And instead of being trusting that God was going to provide, they grumble and start asking, is God even real? Is he even with us? He says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I know that he's with me, and I know that his promises are true. And then you've got the third temptation. And this one, we get to the heart of Satan's desire. This one is the one that I think lays bare Satan's heart, if you will. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Satan's heart for Jesus as God's son, man, fully man, fully God, representative of mankind, if you will. Just bow down and worship me. Set the record straight, right? That's the proper hierarchy of creation. You, as a man, bow down before me, an angel, and I'll give you everything. I'll give you all of this rule, right? Now, how again on earth would that be tempting to Jesus? Why would that tempt the one through whom it was all created, by whom it was all created, for whom it was. It's his rightly. He's going to rule from the right hand of God in just a few short years. Why would this have been tempting? Well, again, in order for his rule to be ushered in, he's going to have to suffer and go to the cross. And remember, Jesus calls out from Gethsemane, Lord, if there's, if there's any other way. And Satan's saying, here's the other way. Just bow down before me. Set it right. Prove, prove that I actually deserve to be served and not the other way around. Prove yourself and prove mankind unworthy of my service. And it's all yours. And Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan. For it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Faithful to the Father. And then you have this beautiful ending sentence in, in verse 11. The devil left him, so Satan departs, and then angels come and attended Jesus. And what a sweet picture that is, right? These angels who have the honor of coming and attending the Son of God incarnate, doing exactly what God has called them, made them to do, right? They come while Satan departs cast out, if you will. So for years, um, and I really do mean that, for years, I thought that in this whole kind of uh, uh, course of interaction, I thought that Satan was right. Jesus proves that he's not self-focused, but the reality is that we are. Jesus proves that he is believing and faithful to God's promises, how quickly we turn away. 
Jesus wouldn't bow before Satan, and so oftentimes we actually do. We are. We're self-focused. We're faithless. We're unworthy. And I used to think that the, the key there was that Satan just simply couldn't fathom the idea that Jesus would be willing to die for unworthy people. But there's a nuance here. And it's so important, and it is so easy to miss. And I missed it for a long time. Um, but it's the difference between undeserving and unworthy. Now, Satan would be right about us if he said that we were undeserving, right? Undeserving of God's love? Absolutely. Undeserving of God's favor? Absolutely. Perhaps undeserving of the service and ministry of angels? Yeah, yeah, undeserving. But hear this, you are worthy of God's love. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I was trying to kind of rack my brain, how often have I heard that? But it's true, you are worthy of God's love because the lover, the one doing the love is the one who has the right to determine the worth of the object being loved. Does that make sense? The lover determines the worth of the object that he loves. So, to, uh, an example. Um, have you guys seen these? They're so easy to get sucked into. You can find, they're on Instagram and YouTube. They're, they're the doggo stories, right? So, you'll find a team that finds a, a pup, like, under a truck. And, and I, I just saw one the other day. It was so good. But there's this pup under the truck, and his fur is all matted to his body, so he can't really move very much, because when he moves, it pulls at his skin and it hurts. He's full of fleas. He hasn't eaten for ages, so he's, he's totally emaciated. And this, these people go in, and they get a, a leash. They get the leash around his neck, and they take him out, and they take him, they take him to a vet. They shave the mats off, they wash him, they get rid of the fleas, they feed him, he growls at them, and then you watch the progression over the course of time. One week, two weeks, a month. And then the videos end with a picture of the puppers like running around being like the happiest doggo in the world, right? Because he's with other dogs, he's been made well. Now that dog, did he deserve, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> But it was the people who saw him who deemed him worthy of their love, right? Where lots of other people would see that dog and think he should really probably just be put down. The lovers determine the worth of the one being loved. So I've got five new scars on my abdomen that I didn't have before. They are still a little bit too pink and kind of fleshy to be cool. Um, give them a year or so, then they'll be cool. Um, but I, I can see them, right, where the robotic hands went into my abdomen. Um, and we all have, sorry, I'm going to use a bad Ill, Ill analogy here, but we have these, right? Like, we all have these scars that you can see and that we can kind of put our finger on. I've also got a whole mess of stuff inside, cuts and slices and wounds that are healing up that I can't see. I know they're in there, but I can't see them. can't really put my finger on exactly what happened inside my body. In some ways, I think a lot of us carry around those internal wounds, if you will. We can't quite put our finger on exactly what they were, but I think one of those things that many of us carry around 
is a question about how God actually views us, right? How does God actually view us? In an effort, I think, to sometimes um, explain the gospel, to, to uh, show the majesty of grace, we often highlight how bad we are, right? We highlight how sinful we are, how awful we are, how unworthy we are. But I think we need to be careful. Undeserving, yes. But we're image bearers. We're children of the living God. Undeserving, yes. But worthy, oh, so worthy. Because God has seen us as being worth dying for worth going to the cross for and dying in our place. And sometimes we need to hear that. We need to understand that we are undeserving, yes, but we also need to know we're of such great worth that God himself decided to become man and die in our place on a cross that we might be in relationship with him. It helps us understand grace, right? That grace, yes, it is a free gift, but it's not given to us out of some cosmic obligation. God doesn't do it unwillingly. Grace is extended to us because we are a people that he loves and that he likes and that he is fond of. So we'll circle back around to our grits. If a chef is making grits and somebody walks in, and he sees the person and he doesn't like them. He's not going to put a whole lot of effort, I don't think, into the grits. I could see him grabbing the spatula and slopping it onto the plate, right? But if his son walks in, how he makes those grits, how he prepares those grits, how he gives those grits, when those grits comes, it comes with love. Amen? You see where I'm going? You see where I'm going? All right, let's pray. Gracious God, take these truths and apply them to our hearts, please, by the power of your spirit. Amen.